Welcome, everyone, to a glorious Friday morning edition of Unexpected Points. I'm sure you got some reviews of the unexpectedly thrilling and offensively proficient Browns-Steelers game, but I'm going to give you all the details here. We're going to break down my numbers, my advanced scores, which are either hated or loved, depending upon uh, whether or not your team looks better or worse um, in this particular game. Both teams look, spoiler alert, both teams look fairly similar to what their their score was in this one. Um, pretty good game for a game that had a 38.5 total going in this one. The over-under, 38.5 in our year of the Lord, 2022. We have a game with a 38 total where... These are, I mean, these starting quarterbacks. I guess you could say that Jacoby Brissett is a placeholder there until Deshaun Watson comes back. But Brissett started some games in this league. He's not someone who's never started before. Trubisky has started some games in this league. The running attack for the Browns is pretty good. Uh, the Steelers, a pretty well-known franchise still. 38.5 over. And for overbetters like yours truly, we're sweating a little bit at the end there. And luckily, uh, Mike Tomlin's decisions, which I'll talk about here, uh, in particular, his decision to kick a field goal on fourth and maybe an inch very near the end of the game, setting up uh, the onside kick, which they would need to then go score a touchdown. If he doesn't do that there, they go for it. They don't get it. Uh, We had a distinct possibility of ending this game at 37, which would have gone under and been pretty painful because these teams played offensively better than what we would have expected. This was an over type of game when we talk about how these teams played offensively. All right, let me get into all of this. I'm going to start by doing the high level type of stuff. Again, I mentioned the total 38 and a half, one of the lowest totals you could have here for this game. The, the line on this one, Closed at, at least the numbers that I have here, closed at four and a half. Cleveland as the favorite at home. Final score, 29 to 17. And again, it was sitting there at uh, 14 to, I guess they only got six on that, right? So 14 to 23 for a while. So it was sitting there at 37 points for a while before we got the field goal. And then we got the last second fumble recovery touchdown to push it well into over territory. Luckily that one play didn't determine whether or not someone was going to lose. If they had the under there that it was already over after the strange decision-making from Mike Tomlin, strange meaning strange, according to nerds, probably not strange. According to Tomlin, according to the book, according to the football guy book for Tomlin, Tomlin, I got to Okay, I'm going to talk to Mike Tomlin again a little bit later in this game. So the adjusted score here, which everyone loves, of course, 29-13. So fairly close to what we saw here. The scores, you think they'd be higher in some ways because both teams played better. But the thing is, I not only look at success rates versus actual efficiency, you know, discount outlier positive plays and discount on the negative side, outlier plays that are more on the negative. I do all of that, make adjustments for turnover-worthy plays that are not interceptions, interceptions that are not turnover-worthy plays, drops that are going to be inconsistent, contested catches are going to be inconsistent. The methodology is complicated, so I'm not going to get into everything, but everything's part of it. But what you should know is it's not really saying that Cleveland was as good as a normal team on a normal day that would score 29 points. Remember, they kind of got six freebies there, but they were better than what their score was up until that point, how well they've been playing. And it's not really saying the Steelers were only like a 13-point team because they played pretty well on offense too. The thing was, both teams only really had 10 real drives in this game. So it was just a grinded-out type of game. Steelers surprisingly successful running the ball in this game, a 98th percentile run success rate for them. So they were able to sustain drives even when it wasn't coming up for touchdowns there were not explosive a lot of explosive plays in this game in a lot of ways the browns rely upon explosive plays in their run game more than they do in their pass game although they got a few longer plays from amari cooper this week that i will talk about okay uh let's talk details here talk quarterbacks first you know got to start the most important position in football and mr trubisky Mr. Trubisky owned me. 
tip of the cap, tip of the cap to Mitch Trubisky here. I've been um, complaining, begging, cajoling, whatever you want to say. Mike Tomlin, please put in Kenny Pickett. Steelers would be 2-0 if you had Kenny Pickett in there. They would have won last week. They were awful week one, yet they came away with that victory. Now Trubisky has to have not only his best game of the season, but this is the second best graded game of his career. He had a 90 offensive grade in this one. Second best of his career, and he did it in an island game that everyone's watching. He did it in a way where... You know, he's not going to be benched, even though we have this 10-day window after a Thursday night game to potentially go to Kenny Pickett, which I think they should do. Again, his first two games, he had a 90 grade this game. So I know everyone's going to say, oh, it wasn't Trubisky's fault. He played well. He had a 90 grade this game. First two games, 61.7 grade, 60.4 grade. First two games, negative 0.2 EPA per play for him. In this game, he was slightly positive when you discount out the uh, that, that play at the end of the game where it's all the fumbles and everything else. That's, that's not part of it. He was slightly positive in this game, but he wasn't a great uh, efficiency type of game. It wasn't as good as his grading in this game, and that's because they were really poor. The Steelers are really poor on the high leverage situations. One for nine on third down in this game. So that really brings down the expected points added. That brings down your efficiency, but we're not weighing those third downs any more heavily than we're weighing other plays when it comes to things like grading. So his, you know, yards per pass attempt and things like that look better and his grading looks better. The situational stuff, which goes into third downs with EPA per play, doesn't look as good for Trubisky because they were one of nine, which stalled a lot of drives also in this game. Uh, Not eye-popping traditional stats for uh, the biscuit here. Uh, 197 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. But we did credit him with three big-time throws, and that's what ends up boosting up his grade, giving him that 90 grade for the week and no uh, turnover-worthy plays in this game. Now, for the big-time throws, two of them were you know plays where they didn't gain any yards. So, again, that's that explains the difference between the grading and the traditional stats and the EPA here. Two of them were sideline-ish sort of throws to uh, Deontay Johnson against Denzel Ward, which I'll, I'll talk about Denzel Ward. He was, he, was getting, he was getting a little roasted in this game, a little toasted and roasted in this game. Two of them were against uh, de- sideline throws against Denzel Ward, where neither one of them were caught. One of them, we actually credited Deontay Johnson with the drop. The other one, we did not, but it kind of hit him in the hands a little bit. Both of them, I think, were tough. Uh, the one we credit him with the drop, I think, was one that he should come in with. But again, when you have these drop and other sorts of designations where it's a binary designation, you're saying a drop or not a drop, you know, every situation is going to be partially one, partially another. I think when it came to war, I mean, it came to Deontay Johnson, these two plays, one of them was more like a 40% drop, 60% too difficult of a catch. The other one was more like 60% drop, 40% too difficult of a catch. So we credit him with one drop on those two different plays. Uh, Biscuit also had a, had a big time throw to Fryer move later in the game. I think it was on that, that drive that set up their last field goal up the seam between a few, few different people. It was pretty, pretty good throw. So pretty good game for Trubisky. Again, he stinks though. Okay, guys, he's one good game. He's already had two bad games before this. He's got a long history of bad games before this. Let's not get crazy after this one game, but this probably is going to give him more rope, which really annoys me because, this is the 10-day window where they could look to turn it over to, to Kenny Pickett. And I don't know, maybe – I think I see some stuff here. Tomlin's watching the tape or something, which they, which they always say. Um, not in that mindset when it comes to, to changing quarterbacks. And I do think it's hard after this one from a football guy perspective because Trubisky was not the problem in this game uh, that they could have won. Now, great game for Jacoby Brissett, too. 92.7 grade, even better than what we saw for Trubisky. That's back-to-back strong games for him. I mean, he's not a guy we're going to expect to be good a lot this season. But he had an 83.6 grade last seat, last week against the Jets. He was not the problem in that game that they lost uh, outside of that late interception. You really wish he wouldn't have thrown that, but it was kind of in desperation mode at that point anyway. Uh, last week, he averaged half a point added per play, which is an extremely good number. 
Uh, this week, he was also well above average, about 0.2 EPA being added. And the Browns offense, again, only 10 drives, which makes it 10 real, like full drives, which makes it a little bit deceiving for the fact that they scored, you know, 23 points before that late last touchdown. If you think about it, the Browns had an offensive stretch here where they went um, after a couple of punts to start the game, where they went touchdown, touchdown. They had a drop on fourth and three. Amari Cooper had a drop, which should have been converted there. Field goal, touchdown. That's a, I mean, they were they were kind of cooking. Brissett and company were cooking there. And the running game was cooking. It was doing well, but it wasn't being consistently successful. It was an under 50th percentile type of game as far as the success rate for runs. But they had big plays. They were converting uh, third downs, and they got some explosives in the running game. Now, I feel like I'm going to have to... Um, I'm going to have to hit up my man, uh, Sam Schwartzstein. If you see Sam Schwartzstein is a guy who used to work for the XFL. Now he's working with, uh, Amazon. He's controlling their advanced stats account. He was on here for a podcast. I, I, I talked to him a lot. I wonder if he's stealing some of my talking points and giving them to the broadcast crew. I mean, not that it's like the most unique talking point, but when Brissett was signed this off season by the Browns, this was before the whole Deshaun Watson thing. So he was being signed at that point, presumably to be the backup to Baker Mayfield, or if things weren't going to work out with Mayfield, maybe the backup to someone else. Not you know necessarily to start. The reason I said I liked it so much is not because I liked Brissett as a starter, but I specifically mentioned how in his career he had been so successful converting third and one and fourth and ones. that He only failed one time in his career up until that point for 20 plus attempts. So that's like a valuable commodity to have. I mean, they would bring him in um, for Philip Rivers sometimes in the past when he was with Indianapolis to convert these sorts of downs. Those are high leverage plays. So like if you're going to pay X million of dollars for a guy to hold the clipboard on the sideline, why not get some extra juice out of that backup quarter position, quarterback position by getting a guy who can convert those third and fourth downs. It can also take those hits rather than having your starting quarterback do it. Even if your starting quarterback is athletic. So they mentioned this the first time he, he did it in this game that he converted on a, a third and one. I think it was, they mentioned it the second time he did it in this game when they converted on a fourth and one with him and then they mentioned of course the third time he did in this game on another third and one near the goal line here so now he's up to 31 of 32 times he has run the ball on a design run so a sneak or something like that Jacoby Brissett has converted now it's unsustainable it's a 97 percent conversion rate unsustainable of course but I think we have enough evidence to say that he's pretty good at this and I'm glad that they were bringing it up during the broadcast. I thought that was a, a big point. And, you know, props to them or props to me, if you, Sam, if you got that from me, talking about it, raving about it, about the entire offseason, what Jacoby Brissett could do there. Uh, one of the reasons why you discount the performances for these quarterbacks a bit is because neither guy was pressured that much. I like to look at fast pressure rate, which are pressures that happen in two and a half or less seconds here. So 15% of the time, uh, Brissett was under a fast pressure, which is a really low number, 20% of the time for Trubisky. So neither one of these guys were getting pressured. And the Steelers, this is going to be a concern, I think, until T.J. Watt comes back. Now we have two different games where it, everything's been moving in the wrong direction in terms of their pressure. They blitz 42% of the time in this game. This is the highest they blitzed during the season, yet they had their lowest fast pressure rate. I mean, the Browns have a good offensive line, but still, that's a little, little concerning. Uh, in week one, when Watt was there um, and, you know, they sack Burrow because Burrow takes too many sacks, but still let's look at the fast pressure rates, which is not really Burrow's fault. If you're getting there quickly, you're getting there quickly. Uh, in week one, they only blitz 20% of the time. So only blitz half of the percent that they did this last week, yet their fast pressure rate was 30%. So they had doubled the fast pressures with half of the blitz rate. And then in week two, zero sacks against Mac Jones, 17% fast pressure rate, which is really, really low. 30% blitzes, which is kind of somewhere in between. So they're going in the wrong direction. They're blitzing more and more for the Steelers, and they're getting less pressure these last two weeks. We'll see what happens and continues to go forward. Patriots, Browns, not bad at pass protection for these guys. Brissett was getting the ball out of his hands very, very quickly, which helped avoid sacks. 24 
second time to throw for Jacoby Brissett. And I looked through all 38 games where he's had at least 10 dropbacks. This was the second fastest time to throw Brissett has ever had in the game. He wasn't scrambling a whole lot. So that probably has something to do with it. But, you know, Brissett's executing a little bit. Surprising, shocking, good coaching probably there for good system, which I thought would be the case. Um, and man, the Browns could be 3-0 and right now without Deshaun Watson. I mean, they're very easy schedule, easiest schedule in the NFL. Uh, so far, but still uh, would have been impressive for Brissett. Okay, let's get to rushing because, you know, Nick Chubb is going to be somewhat the story in the Browns running game, 171 yards rushing in this game. So Nick Chubb right now, 341 yards in three games and four touchdowns. So let's do a completely unrealistic yet fun to talk about extrapolation here. Over 17 games, that would be 1,932 rushing yards and 23 rushing touchdowns for Nick Chubb. Don't think he'll get there. Don't think we're we're in danger of getting a 2,000-yard season from Nick Chubb, but he's killing. He's killing it so far. Uh, Number one running back in fantasy football, even in PPR leagues, people play in points per reception, despite the fact he's not doing a whole lot receiving. Zero catches in this game. Steelers, surprisingly decent running the ball in this game. Maybe that's the Browns defense, doesn't know how to guard against the run, but did not expect this coming. Not a lot of yardage here, only 104 yards, but only on 22 carries. So decent efficiency, even from a yards per carry perspective. Um, Lack of explosive runs, nothing more than 11 yards, whereas the Browns had four runs that were 11 plus yards, including a 36 yard run. But they did convert eight first downs on those 22 rushes. So that's a pretty good conversion rate. And there were lots of second and short and medium, second short slash medium type of plays that the Steelers ran the ball and they converted the first down, which has not been happening for them in previous games. They've been stuck in a lot of either third and shorts or they're just getting stuck on second and medium and it'll be third and medium. So they actually had success in this one. 98th percentile success rate running the ball, which is shocking. Shocking for the Steelers. Will that continue going forward? Eh, probably not. But it is something to keep an eye on for helping them stay afloat offensively. Um, if they're going to struggle passing the ball, and I think they will. I think they'll go back to struggling passing the ball with Mitchell Trubisky. Okay, let's look at some of the receiving work here. I guess we got to talk about the George Pickens catch, the Odell Beckham-ish sort of over-the-shoulder catch. Great play, great catch, similar to uh, some of the stuff, although on an even higher level that we saw during the preseason. But I'm going to be a little bit of a hater here. You know me. I'm a, this is, uh, I, I, I love to hate. Actually, I got to get my, um, where's my hater uh, sound, sound drop here. I hate you. I hate you. I don't even know you, and I hate your guts. Okay, so... Sorry, sorry, Pickens. I'm going to have to hate a little bit on you because still three catches for 39 yards in the game, two drops, um, seven targets. So three catches on seven targets in a game where Trubisky's being pretty efficient um, and we're still getting nothing from Pickens as far as efficiency there. Now we can, you know, we can blame Trubisky and I think Trubisky was getting a lot of blame, but still Pickens is like one or two notches below the rest of this receiver core when it comes to how efficient he's being with his routes or his targets uh, this season. I mean, think about it. this year so far, he is averaging Pickens is averaging 0.6 yards per route run, 35% catch rate. He's basically catching one out of every three targets. It's just like they're wasting targets, throwing it to him. He has four yards of yak this entire season. And I think that's like when my hater thing with Pickens, this is what I was hating on a little bit in the preseason and training camp, all the highlights and other stuff. The most impressive highlights, including this highlight that we saw last night from Pickens, they're impressive because it's a contested catch because the coverage is pretty tight because the ball has to be perfectly thrown and perfectly caught in order for it to be made a play. Well, guess what? You know, get open. <laughs> How about that? How about that, Pickens? I know you said you were open 90% of the time um, against New England Patriots, but, you know, get open. You'll have fewer chances to put up these uh, contested catch, highlight reel type of plays, but maybe you'll have better than a 35% catch rate and more than four yards of yak for over three games if, if you're getting open a little bit more there. You know, just my point. Whereas Deontay Johnson's kind of killing it, even with Trubisky uh, not playing well this, this season. Okay, uh, David and Joke, David Njoku. I'm going to make sure I'm saying that correctly. I believe that's how I, I always I like to say Njoku, but it's Njoku. David Njoku is the other story in this one. 
nine for 89 and a touchdown on 10 targets, 57 yards of yak. Again, that's like showing me something. That's showing me an explosive player who's doing something, who's getting open. Like you've got to be open to get yak because you're not getting tackled immediately. Um, I mean, it's good to see this breakout after he got this big contract extension in the offseason. But, you know, he still disappears a lot. He had 39 total yards in the first two games of the season. So you're going to hope this is going to presage things in, in the future. But more likely, this is one of his spike weeks that you're going to see periodically that's not necessarily going to continue going forward. Um, what may continue going forward, and what I think is a, a positive thing to see here, is... Cooper, uh, Amari Cooper going over 100 yards for two straight games. He had that he had that painful drop on fourth and three, but he is functioning as a go-to type of guy in key situations. He had four fourth down conversions, would have been a fifth if he didn't drop that fourth and third. Uh, he had a touchdown. That touchdown was from 11 yards out. So that's a valuable type of touchdown. This is not a, um, I'm going to, Hate a little bit more here. It's not like when these Aaron Rodgers, Devontae Adams touchdowns from previous years where he just kind of like runs in there and you, and you throw it to him. This is not a uh, shovel pass touchdown. This is a, a, a legit 11-yard touchdown from out there. A high, high expected points added gained type of play there for Cooper. And he gives him an explosive element. While he's not, he's never proven to be like a most reliable target hog type of receiving weapon. He's giving them a, a explosive plays, which they desperately need uh, in this offense. He and he and you know, Najoku is another guy who can give him those explosive plays, but he's not, he's not consistent. So Cooper, uh, by giving him some explosive plays, get a 32 yard catch, a 28 yard catch. So those are some big plays that they need to get this offense rolling. That is going to primarily be running the ball and grinding things out a little bit more. Uh, some other notes here. I mentioned Nick Chubb, no catches. He he only ran one less route than Kareem Hunt, though. So that's interesting. Uh, catches will come if he continues to get that kind of usage. I don't think he will necessarily, but he's not getting like screens that often and stuff, although he probably should. So at least he was out there, you know, running, running routes. Um, in no one cares, but the most uh disgusting of dynasty and players here uh dynasty fantasy players david bell has established himself now the third round rookie as the wide receiver three he had 19 routes in this game anthony schwartz is pretty much dunzo i think two routes but he only had one catch for six yards and you know it was a, it was a catch also where I, I don't god i think it was a third down but it was one that you wanted to get a conversion on and he's, you know, he's not very athletic. That's why he fell in the, in the draft and he just couldn't quite separate to get enough and to get some extra yards after the catch on that one. Uh, on the Steelers side of the ball, Fryer moved decent game. It's kind of like decent, decent, decent. Deontay Johnson could have been a bigger game with some, with some uh, plays down the field, but he continues to be their number one guy. It's just when you only have, you know, 200 yards of passing in total, it's kind of hard to have any sort of eye-popping numbers. Let's go to pass rush. Again, Steelers, issues, issues, issues. One total pressure from any edge player, Alex Highsmith, who did have a sack on that pressure. Uh, Cam Hayward and Larry Ogunjobi had a couple of pressures each, but not a lot there. Not a lot for the Browns in this game, too. No sacks for Miles Garrett. He did have three pressures. He's really the only well-graded player in the pass rush, and no one else really did much for the Browns in that regard. Okay, let's go to Denzel Ward in coverage. This is another story from this game. He got paid. He got paid this offseason, which at the time, although it was surpassed thereafter, was the biggest contract in a per year basis, though there was some chicanery in that contract um, for a cornerback, former number four overall pick. He had a rough game. Four first downs were converted against him. He also had a defensive holding call, which is another conversion. He had a DPI, which was offsetting penalties in the game in, 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 for that DPI, but still another penalty there. Two big-time throws, as I mentioned earlier, from Trubisky to Deontay Johnson that were not caught, but they were both against Ward. So those would have been if, you know, Deontay could have come down with either one of those. And one of them we, we called a drop. That would have made it even worse. And he had a 29 coverage grade in this game. And he has a 32 coverage grade this season, which is the second worst grade for any cornerback who's been targeted at least 10 times. Not great from Ward. Maybe he'll turn it around. I know they use him in press a lot. They ask him to do a lot. You know, I just, I've always had questions about whether he's really that guy, 
who, who can do that. But, you know, it's not like alarm bells here, but disappointing start to the season so far for a guy that you're paying to be the man at, at cornerback this season. We'll see how it continues going, going forward. Uh, okay, we got to talk about fourth down decisions. I know everyone hates the nerds, hates the fourth down decisions, hates everything else here. But if we add up the win probability lost by the Steelers in this game, and again, Mike Tallman, I like you, but this is your you're you're a boomer when it comes to fourth down decisions. You're in that super boomer category of guys who are going to always make these wrong decisions on fourth down. Eight point seven total win probability lost, and that kind of over and underestimates it for some reasons. There was one play that was a 2.2 gain if they went for it, but it was on their own side of the field in the third quarter. You know, very few teams are going to do that. So teams should be doing it, but I'm not even expecting like an aggressive coach to necessarily do that. So I'll cut you some slack on that one. But I think there's also an underestimation because the fourth and one, where they kicked the field goal near the end of the game. That was like inches, 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 inches. They did not go for it. So that was probably even a larger win probability loss than what they're saying. And they also said it wasn't a win probability loss when they punted uh, fourth and six late in the game. Let me get the exact situation here. Because I was pretty shocked that this was, that the call was not to go for it. Okay, so it was fourth and six, 426 left to go in the game. Pittsburgh was on its own 10 yard line and they decide to punt the ball okay now i thought it was going to be pretty obviously that they should have gone for it in that situation but again it's where the, the ben baldwin model says it was about net zero no real gain here um but if you think about it on this one, this is why I think it's a pretty obvious way obvious that they should have gone for it in this fourth and sixth situation i know the worry is you you fail uh, oh, by the way, at this point, they are um, they're down nine points. They're down nine points with 426 left. So obviously the, the, the case against is it's a fourth and six. Your chance of success is probably like 35, 40 percent on this one. And you're most likely going to fail. And if you fail, then you give the ball to the other team at your 10 yard line. I get it. They kick a field goal. You're down by 12 points. It's not over, but they score a touchdown, it's over on this one. So, yeah, I, I get that. But the thing is, the next drive went about as well as humanly possible for the Steelers, meaning they stopped them in three plays. But they still lost multiple timeouts. The clock, they got the ball back with three minutes and 13 seconds left, and they need nine points. Like, what's the probability with one timeout? You have one timeout, you get the ball back with three minutes and 13 seconds left. you got to go a long distance because, again, when you're punting from your own – 10 you're also giving that other team really good field position that's part of it too it's not like you fail to convert you give them the ball at the 10 you punt it and they start at their own 25 no no no. they're starting at midfield so they have a pretty good chance of still getting a field goal and a better chance of, of running more clock on that drive too now they didn't you stop them but a better chance of running more clock because if you give them the ball in your own 10 yard line that's one set of downs basically is all they have to run clock um but the reason why if you think about it, 313 left, you get the ball after you punt, you have a perfect stopping of them. You waste two time. I mean, not waste two months, but use two timeouts. You get the ball back 313. The chance that you're going to score before the two minute warning and have enough time to use the two minute warning with the other team's possession and then use your timeout and get the ball back again is pretty much nil. So at that point, when you're punting from your own 10 yard line, 426 left, down nine you're pretty much saying we're going to need to get an onside kick most likely eventually. And you know, the percentages of onside kicks have gone up because they changed the rules. They made it so that the, um, the coverage team can only have nine players near the, uh, the catch zone. They call it the catch zone. You can only have nine players, which has boosted the onside kick recovery rates up to about 20%, but still it's about 20% versus your chance of converting this. So, you know, in other words, you're trying to get, you're going to have to gain a possession eventually with an onside kick at a 20% rate. Why not take this chance to gain a possession on fourth and six at a higher than 20% rate? That's what it seems like to me. But again, the numbers disagree with me on this one. So, so there's that one, but it's just completely egregious though, 
at the end of the game, it's fourth and a little bit over five yards. You get the penalty. Bad penalty by the Browns, by the way. 12 men on the field there. Third time in that game they had 12 men on the field. Some coaching issues there. Um, it's third and an inch, and you don't go for it. You kick the field goal to extend the game. Because, again, I, I don't know what the rationale is here. You're just like, I need 10 points, so why not do it? But what you're setting up most likely is even if you get the onside kick, you're probably setting up a situation where instead of going for it on fourth and one inch, you went for it. You're going to go for it later on fourth and three, fourth and four, fourth and five, if you get the onside kick, which you didn't get, of course. Um, But you just didn't want to end the game, I guess. Like this, this really aversion to these coaches of saying, we don't want the game to be over. You know, if we went for it on fourth and six on our own 10, the game's over if we don't get it. If we go for it on fourth and an inch down nine, with a minute 51 left, if we don't get it, the game's over because we only have one timeout. Um, yeah, I just don't like that mentality. That was a 2.9 win probability loss on that play, so a pretty big one. Uh, and then the other play, there was another like traditional one that they should have gone for, which is this was completely wild because it was fourth and five on the Browns' 41-yard line. This is in the third quarter. Fourth and five at the Browns' 30 41 yard line and the Steelers are up a point at this point they they don't convert and they well again yeah they don't convert and there's an offensive pass interference call so Stefanski chooses to decline that which would have moved him back to third and 15 from like the 50 yard line he chooses to decline that and I don't know if he knew Tomlin would not go for it at fourth and five in that situation because that was a 3% win probability game. That's like that no man's land where you're not going to get a necessarily a great field position gain on the punt because you might kick it into the end zone. And you it's a little bit too far to make a field goal. So Stefanski declined it, setting up like a go-for situation. If, if someone would have done this to, to Stefanski, if it was the Browns who had fourth and five, and there was a chance of either moving him back five yards and having him do third and 15 or allowing them to go fourth and five. If that other team declined the penalty, Stefanski would have just gone for it on fourth and five here. I don't know. Like, I feel like he might've made the wrong decision. If you're playing a coach who knows how to go for it on fourth down, it was the wrong decision to decline. Maybe Stefanski had some, you know, three, three dimensional chess, you know, sort of thing here where he knew game theory that, Tomlin wasn't going to go for it, even in an obvious go for it situation. So then he declined the penalty and then, you know, get the punt back on his side. A pretty uh, strange set of events there, though. And for his, uh, on the other side of the ball, I mean, I don't think fourth down decisions decided this game. There's so much more going into it. But Stefanski did gain win probability. 8.6 win probability gained for the Browns, they were also successful on three out of four fourth downs. The only unsuccessful one was a drop, so they could have been even better on here. But 8.6% win probability gained from those decisions alone uh, outside of the results. And, you know, that makes a big difference. One one team loses 8.7, another team gains 8.6 off of these results. Those are huge, huge, huge differences here uh, to what to what we're seeing in the in this game. All right, everybody, that is basically my review here for the Browns. Again, they could have they could have been could have been three and out after all this. Uh Steelers one and two. I don't think the Steelers have much of a chance to do anything. They're one of the worst teams by my numbers, although they'll improve after this game. Um, you know, maybe we'll get some miracle and Pickett will be in there going forward, but I doubt that it's gonna end up happening. All right, before I get to the best bets that I have. For this weekend that I'm going to be playing recreational purposes only. Let's talk appropriately. Let's talk DraftKings. The NFL action is in full swing here at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. We are talking touchdowns, big plays, and even bigger wins. New customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. If that's not enough, everyone can boost their winnings with DraftKings stepped up same game parlays. Right now, for every leg you add, you can boost your winnings up to 100% with bigger payouts than ever. Why bet on football anywhere else? To make things even sweeter, you can throw down on stepped-up same-game parlays once per game day all season long. 
Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets. If your team wins when you place a $5 bet on any football game, that's code PFF only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. And also quickly mention PFF app. Get it. Got it. Good. New layout, new formats, awesome ways, especially for fantasy football, of checking out our rankings, doing player comparisons, start sit, all the information you want there on injuries, on blurbs, on how what we're feeling about all the different players. Get the PFF app now available on the App Store for whatever operating system that you use on your mobile phone. All right. Best bets for the weekend. Again, um, I, I wish I would have told you guys about the 38 and a half, but it didn't really sink in for me until a couple of days ago. And again, recreational purposes only. Let's not get crazy for, for this here. I'm not going to claim to be some you know hugely successful sports better here. But uh, there are a few games that I like. And this is kind of like very unlike me generally as far as how I'm thinking about these bets early in the season because I don't really have enough data to go off of. I have some stuff. I have some stuff where I'm comparing like how well a team has performed versus the final score according to my adjusted score. And it's going to play into some of this here where there may be a misperception of a team being better or worse offensively or defensively than we think, Uh, especially when there's like hype and narrative and everything that I'm at least sensing around these different things. Uh, So the first one is one of these situations where there's a lot of hype, a lot of narrative, a lot of good feelings about the Detroit Lions offense right now. And that plays into not that I think it's a good bet to bet on the Vikings who are going to be at home in this one who are six-point favorites, but I think it's a good bet to go under in this one. So this is my first play for the weekend that I like a lot, under 52.5 points. Remember, we had Brissett versus Trubisky, 38.5 points. Here we have Goff versus Cousins, which, you know, I mean, I like these guys. I like these system quarterback types of guys, but still, Goff versus Cousins. And the Detroit Lions team that wants to run the ball, wants to run the ball a ton if they can, especially on the road. 52 and a half. This is not very analytical, but I will blind bet <laughs> under a 52 and a half golf cousins. Any golf cousins matchup, give me 52 and a half. I will take the under. Although they did have that huge shootout, didn't they? Remember that um, that Rams uh, Minnesota game that was like the game of the year? Uh, I think it was a Thursday night. It was a Thursday night one in LA where Cooper Cup had like these ridiculously long touchdowns and they went back and forth. So erase that from your memory though. Let's let's concentrate on what's going on here for, for this game. And one of the big factors here is the Lions because I think the Minnesota was overhyped on their first week, like their results from week one because they got like these blown coverage touchdowns, some other things that weren't like that indicative that they were that great of an offense. And for that reason, um, I actually, you know, you guys should watch the uh, PFF show that that happens, uh, the 11 a.m. show, the It's Just Football show, because I've been in there a couple of different times. And one of the ones was having um, Eagles minus two and a half was one that I picked going into the second week because I thought that Minnesota was a little overhyped offensively. I mean, they're not going to be as bad as they were offensively against the Eagles. Like they'll, you know, they'll regress and, and, and get better in that, in that regard going forward. But they were a little overhyped offensively going into that game. And I think the lions are kind of ex- almost extremely overhyped going into this game. There was an interesting article that just came out in the athletic by 10 win, who I love uh, does really great work there, but I'll throw the butt in there because um, I love Ted, but it was kind of tying into like the Lions running game, which has been awesome this year. Absolutely awesome. 7.1 yards per carry, uh, 3.8 yards before contact, which has been awesome this year, but he had to tie it into, you know, what this means for um, the, the entire like world, <laughs> you know, and what's, and what's going to happen going forward. And the, the whole, the whole NFL system is going to change, and this is the blueprint to you know destroying two highs. Yeah, I mean, if you could run for seven yards a carry, 
if any team can sustainably run for seven yards a carry, I agree. That would be a great way to, um, you know, figure out what's going on and um, beat all these two high coverages. Well, guess what? No team's going to run for 7.1 yards per carry, including the Detroit Lions. They've had a bunch of outlier explosive plays from DeAndre Swift and from Amon Ross St. Brown. I have their offense being about six or seven points, maybe even a little bit more worse than what their actual score has been this year. So they've had a good offense, but they look like they've had a fantastic offense this season. And it's really been based on these flukier outlier type of plays that just isn't going to happen. Just not going to happen as much as you think it is going to going forward. And that is really the main reason I like the under in this one is because I think it is really being built into the Lions over under here. The fact that they scored 35 points in week one, 36 points in week two. And again, I had them more being like 30 points in week one and 26 in week two, which is you know close enough to get home. The Vikings don't have a great defense, but that was with this outlier efficiency that they're also getting there. And, and success rates are going gonna to go down a little bit for this team running the ball. So that's going to take them down a bit there. And the Vikings offense still is in prove-it mode for me as to whether this is all going to be a successful formula. They're passing it a lot. So if they also get down and they pass it a lot, um, that can lead to some outlier outcomes either for them scoring a lot of points or them scoring very few points like we saw against the Eagles last week. So for this one, I think it's just too many things leaning in the direction of Lions will regress a little bit offensively. They'll regress a little bit defensively, too, which they have the worst defense in the NFL, according to my numbers so far this season and what they've given up to a really good Eagles offense and a surprisingly okay commander's offense. I think the defense will play a little bit better. There has been some signs there. They can get a little bit better. And then on the other side, the Vikings defense is a bit of a question mark, but I don't expect pedal to the metal for Detroit in this game. So that's the first one. Um, The under on this one. The second one I like is a side, and this is almost an entirely I'm betting based upon my priors coming into the season type of thing, and I'm discounting some of the results that we've seen so far this year, and that is the Bucks minus one and a half. This was actually two and a half, and I would have been fine taking them at two and a half at home against the Packers. It's gone down to one and a half. There's you know concerns about the receiving core, right, for, for the for the the Bucks, that's going to be the big question. Mike Evans suspended. Julio Jones questionable at best. Um, Godwin questionable, really at best. I don't think there's Godwin's not going to play, right? Uh, Russell Gage is and and Brett Perryman are even questionable, but I think those guys will play, and we'll see some Scotty Miller in there also. I don't think Brady has been that bad so far this year. He's just not throwing it much. Their pass rate is way way under expectation. It's ten percent under expectation after being the highest in the league last year at 10% over expectation. And they haven't had to really pass the ball a lot. And they faced two defenses in the Saints and the Cowboys who are legit top five defenses. I mean, Cowboys might be a top three defense so far this year. So I think that was the plan to grind it out here. Now, the Packers are also a pretty good defense. But I I think the Bucs will open it up a little bit more in this game. We'll pass a little bit more in this game. We saw the coverage bust from the Packers in week one. And the thing is, we just don't know anything about the Packers. So I'm also betting on Packer uncertainty being higher than Buccaneers uncertainty because the Buccaneers defense has been awesome so far this year against a Saints offense, which is pretty good. And against a Cowboys defense, which while Dak Prescott was there, should have been functional, but they weren't. So the Buccaneers defense has been awesome. The offense... Again, Brady looks good enough passing the ball to me. I think they can turn things around. Not great that they don't have all these receivers. Not great that they have the interior problems and the offensive line. But I'm confident they can be functional, at least on that side of the ball. Packers, defensively, bad in week one with coverage bus. Good in week two. But that week two game, again, offense, bad in week one against a normal NFL team, the the Vikings. Good in week two. But in week two, they weren't playing a normal NFL team. (laughs) They were playing the Chicago Bears. Chicago Bears are probably the worst team in the NFL. Chicago Bears were not even trying to pass the ball. Uh, The Packers ran. um, Aaron Jones is running for nine yards per carry. They didn't have to show anything as far as a functional passing game here. They had a few passes to Sammy Watkins and some other things going on. You know, Alan Lazard is they've proven nothing as far as their ability to 
pass the ball and have a functional offense. And they haven't really proven defensively a team that we're assuming is going to be a really, really good defense is actually going to be a really, really good defense. They probably are, but they've proven less to me than the Buccaneers have proven so far this season. So for that reason, um, the Bucs are being treated as almost equivalents at one and a half with these wide receiver injuries is almost being an equivalent, if not slightly worse ish sort of team um, with that spread. And I think they're a better team. I think overall they are a better team in the NFL right now. So I'll take that despite the fact that they're missing the wide receivers. I mean, I think that's kind of overplayed and I think it's more the offense hasn't been turned loose as much as it could be so far this season. Okay. So those are two of my plays, and my last play here is an interesting one, and this is going to be a little bit based on some things outside of the numbers. This Again, this is not a numbers play. This is a game scenario play for me, and that is going under in Jaguars at Chargers. The over-under right now, is 47 and unfortunately it's been moving down so like it would have been a little bit better is it 48 earlier this week and moved down a bit there are a few different ways you can get home on this one number one I guess there's some chance Herbert won't play at all although I think he will but number two and especially when we contrast Herbert here versus Jameis Winston and his you know fractured back which actually isn't that big of a deal uh Romo played through it before it's, on, it's a pain management type of situation. It's not a re-injury risk type of situation. Herbert and his uh, fractured cartilage in his ribs, that's, that affects your passing way more. It's way more exposed to a sack. Like the probability that Herbert misses a series, misses a half, gets knocked out of the game, can't play at all. His play is highly affected after getting hit. All of those things are highly in the probability of maybe this will happen in this game. And I don't think it's fully being priced into this 47 number because I think the Jaguars defense is not that great, but I think the Chargers defense is really, really, really good this season. I think they might even have like a top five-ish sort of defense. So I don't think it's really being priced in at a number, which I mean, it's not a for Justin Herbert, a 47 number is low, but I think he could be really affected by this. And another thing is Herbert, you know, there's all this talk about the the offense does not, throw the ball down the field for the Chargers. Part of it is scheme. Part of it is weapons. So part of it is scheme. Everyone focuses on scheme. Joe Lombardi, moron. Why are we scheming stuff down the field? Part of it is scheme. Part of it may be that he's a moron. I don't know. Part of it's scheme. Part of it is weapons. You have to have receivers. Receivers control a lot of average depth of target. Look at Tua throwing down the field now to uh, Tyreek Hill. That's not happening if Tyreek Hill's not there. It's not just a Tua thing. Um, so receivers control a lot of depth of target, and this is an offense where their primary receivers, even when Keenan Allen is healthy, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Austin Eckler, they're just not downfield guys. I mean, he's throw, Herbert's throwing dimes down the field to DeAndre Carter. And in the past, you know, Jalen Guyton and those types of guys that he's throwing down the field to. But they're just never going to command a high level of targets when you have these other guys in your offense. I mean, Gerald Everett's probably the most explosive guy on that on that offense right now, but he's more of a yak guy than a um, than a down the field type of target. So part of it is weapons. So and part of it is quarterback um, temperament. Like Andrew Luck, midway through his career, flipped over from being a risk taking, throw the ball down the field, take a lot of hits. But he took so many hits and got so injured that when there was a scheme change to Frank Reich, so there was a scheme change, he really leaned into it and got rid of the ball early and suddenly became a quick time to throw, short A dot, don't take, take sacks type of guy. Same thing happened to Ben Roethlisberger. And part of it for those two guys is they, they were taking so many injuries that they had to be, they were affected by that. Herbert naturally, I believe, has a temperament to quickly get the ball out of his hands and dissect quickly rather than sit back and wait and take hits and throw the ball down the field. So he naturally has that. With this rib injury, I think this will be even more enhanced, and there'll be lots of quick, quick, quick passes. So also, if you want to bet, there's another bet you can do. Um, if you want to bet on you know, some player prop sort of stuff, I would say Eckler. 
Um, oh, there's no bet up for Eckler in this game. How's that possible? Okay, well, we'll, we'll find it. With Eckler, if Eckler gets some player props up here, uh, I would love that. I would love whatever over he has on his on his receptions in this game. But that's really it. So that's down. And then the other side, the Jaguars, they look really good, but no pressure last week against the Colts. They're going to get pressured against the Chargers. Chargers are getting a lot of pressure now with four. And then everyone's healthy. Derwin's healthy. Everyone's healthy on the back end there for, for, for this game. So they're going to get a lot of pressure. And then we'll see. We'll see what Trevor can do. You know, he didn't face a ton of pressure week one, and he was shaky. Uh, he was great week two. No pressure. No offensive pressure. Also, from the other side of thinking we got to score, we got to score. I mean, the Colts didn't score a point. So I'm still – I'm not sold on this offense for the Jaguars, which has looked a lot better and functional this year. So I know it's a lowish sort of total. It's a total where if you plug it into a model without accounting for the Herbert injury, the model is going to tell you take the over clearly on this one because part of it's being priced in. Don't think it's enough. Um, and that's my third and final best bet is under 47 points for Jaguars and the Chargers. All right, guys. Hope you enjoyed this. Hope you enjoyed the Thursday night wrap-up. I'm also making appearances on the PFF Fantasy Football Pod. If you want to hear me going through with Ian Harditz, uh shooting the shit about AFC and NFC teams every Wednesday, that will be coming out on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform. Leave me a thumbs up here if you enjoy what you're hearing. Leave me a comment. I see them. I read them. I don't take too much offense if someone's making a good point, a good constructive criticism point. And if they're making a bad point, then I just ignore it. Um, but I love the the commentary that you guys got there. A lot of smart viewers and listeners to the pod, which I enjoy interacting with. Otherwise, I'll be coming back at you on Monday morning to review the Sunday night game and all the rest of Sunday's action. Until then, everyone have a great weekend. Have hopefully a profitable betting weekend if you're into that sort of thing. Um, and I'll be talking to you on Monday. Thanks so much, guys.